Hello, friends and fans. You are listening to part two of a two-part episode. If you didn't listen to part one and you're listening to this now, you're a madman and need to be locked up. Go back and listen to part one. For the rest of you, enjoy. One effect that we really don't think of, even though we kind of still do this, at least the the dirtbags among us do, embezzlement was actually like a huge deal at that time. And and when we think of embezzlement now, we think of embezzling money, like cooking books and stuff like that. Right, right. But in this period, he means like stealing materials. Um, Nice. So it was such a serious problem that like, Workers considered it part of their wages to <laughs> steal shit from work. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> Which, if only it were that good now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, I guess depending on where you were, like, uh, when I worked at uh, the bakery job, I would get all of my food from work. I, like, I considered that part of my wages. So whatever food we were throwing out, I would take. Or if... if even if we weren't throwing out, I would just mark it off. Say, like, uh, oh, yeah, this is expired now, and, and then just steal it. Um, yes. So in this time, because they had these more specialized and sometimes more valuable materials, embezzlement became, like, an even bigger problem. And so in the, in the workshops, um, you couldn't supervise the workers and make sure that they weren't stealing shit. But in the factories, you can have a supervisor there watching everyone to all make right. sure that they aren't stealing, and uh, you can search all the employees on the way out to catch any thieves. Right, and grope their women and children. Yes, right, clearly. You know, just part of your wage, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think another good reason to go back to the workshop system is that it makes it easier to steal shit, and we should yeah. uh, should do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm on board with it, yeah. <laughs> so, Sostak buries a significant lead in the next section. Uh, because goods became less local and became sold at higher volumes, sales began to occur by sample as opposed to face-to-face. So, like, you, like nowadays, if you are to order uh parts for an industrial operation you wouldn't like go to the place that made it and inspect the whole lot of goods because you'd be like if you were if you were trying to make a circuit board uh and you're making a run of you know a hundred thousand circuits you need like you know 10 million resistors or whatever right Um, you're not going to go inspect all the resistors the, the factory that makes them will send you sample components, which you then test on a prototype, and then if the sample is good, then they'll sell you the huge lot of the goods. Right, and right, usually right. the samples are free. So, like, if, if anyone is ever thinking of doing, like, some kind of manufacturing product project for themselves, like a DIY project, uh, try looking at a catalog yes, for yes. industrial parts. I know this. you can do this for electronics, you can just get free samples and like make the shit. They'll just send it to you. So in the workshop system, things were usually sold right near where they were made. So you take the whole lot of goods to the store, and whoever was buying it could inspect it by hand and say like, "Yeah, this all looks good." Um, and so they could find defects like right away. They would they wouldn't buy it if there were any defects in it. 
Um, but if you're buying by sample, then you know the even if the seller doesn't intentionally pick out the best looking sample they can find, just a random selection of stuff, you know, you're not necessarily going to get all the stuff with defects in it. Um, and so on top of that, piecework, which was more common in the workshop, uh, mm-hmm. encouraged uh, like a varied range of quality of goods. So mm-hmm. if you're getting paid by the part, you not only like have a more of a reason to hide the quality of work by say like you know uh like if you're picking fruit you put the bad fruit at the bottom and then you put the good fruit on top and then they look at the fruit the basket of fruit and they're like okay that looks good and then so that's a bushel um but if you're working in a factory then the foreman can inspect your work and enforce a standard quality so if you're selling by sample you need like a standard quality of goods to ensure that you don't find a bunch of defects. Right. And he, he cites as an example uh, someone who bought a large lot of nails from a workshop um, and they complained that a lot of the nails didn't have heads. <laughs> they were just points. Uh, <laughs> <fuck>. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a little uh, much of a problem, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so factories not only favored favored the inspection, they also favored wage labor, which was less prone to the lower, like the varied range of quality or trying to hide the quality of your work. Because oh, you're okay. there anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so now we loop back actually to what we were <laughs> getting off track with, which was, um, you know, during the... Uh, the Victorian era, and I, I guess, like, uh, I was just telling Diana, I, I I'm not very good at the periods of England. She knows them better than I do, but, um, you know, the periods before that, like, fashion became more of a thing. So people would change their clothes to, like, a lot like, different <laughs> styles more and more often, especially rich people. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and so because they were centralized and operated by, you know, a foreman, factories became uh, more responsive to those changes. <clears throat> but again, this is another one of those things where uh, he doesn't question whether um, factories became more advantageous because of fashion or fashion became more advantageous because of factories. Because it could have been that you know factories taking over markets uh, made the process of changing fashion possible, where... People were either, you know, encouraged by the availability of goods or something to mm. change their clothes more often. Right, right. I mean, that, yeah, that's true because, like, the UK, I should say Britain, um, was working really hard to become, like, uh, a, a dominant uh, force in the textile industry. So, you know, I mean, like, you're talking about the wool, right? Like, the Highland Clarences, you get a bunch of fucking wool. So then you're suddenly you're making money off that wool and the mutton, I guess. Uh, and then and uh, Wales is gonna pay for it. That's that's right. And Wales is gonna pay for it. And so then you're yeah, you got all this fucking wool. And then also at the same time, let's not fucking forget that there's these places uh, where a bunch of slaves are picking a bunch of cotton and making cotton textiles, and that's fucking cheap. So between that right, and the, the wool Irish, industry, yeah. Right, yeah, everybody knows the Irish. We're, uh, 
we're wallpapers. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so then, so then basically there's, uh, I mean, this is basically one reason why textiles are kind of a famous example of like, uh, uh, capital exploitation. It's just like, it, le it led to these kind of vicious circles of like, you get the cheap textiles from the, the fucking slave labor, you know, uh, 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 plantations and shit. Uh, you know, you you fucking push a bunch of people off their land so you can make more sheep and make more wool and make more money off that wool. Suddenly, you've got a glut of textiles. What are you going to do? You're going to make even more fucking money by making it into like fashion, fashionable clothing, and sell people on, like you said before, sell people on luxury. But now, luxury suddenly is fucking everywhere because you cheapened all this shit and you made it more accessible to everybody. But like. Yeah, we don't really think of luxury as like being able to get new clothes all the time. Yeah. I think it's because we've been raised in a like the fast fashion culture, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, not I, a I'm a thing. Yeah, I, I've I've had multiple experiences with it. Like um, Indonesia is a place where there's a lot of textile processing, um, but it's also a place where um, you would commonly see. Uh, in many places where I lived, uh, you would meet people who had literally two t-shirts to their, per to their name, you know, oh, wow. and yeah, you know, um, and one was their nice t-shirt that they would keep clean. And one was their working shirt, you know? Um, and they had like one pair of shorts, you know, or something like that, you know, and like maybe a pair of slacks to go to like church or, or mosque or something. Um, and, and that's it. That's, that's what they've got. Um, and uh, and at the same time, you know, Indonesia is a, a place where there's a ton of textile and other clothing fabrication plants. You know, Nike is huge there. Uh, all this other stuff. You know, yeah, you it's go like to like here going hungry. It's just fucking madness. It, 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 exactly, exactly. It's absolute fucking insanity. It's and it's so clearly unethical, and it's it's uh, it's absurd, right? So yeah, I mean, um, it is. Uh, it, it is kind of weird. Like, I mean, I love just having a bunch of clothes. I, I mean, I'm used to it, right? I have uh, a lot of shirts. I have a, a, a few pairs of jeans that I like and, um, you know, some like fucking, uh, you know, a few flannels that I enjoy. And I've kind of gathered a lot of these over the years. But the fact is that I was able to, you know, I had that amount of discretionary income such as it is. Um, now, I think that, that kind of uh, mundane luxury of like the the average worker in like a, a highly uh, industrialized country like the states, you know, where we kind of get bribed into submission in a way. Um, I think that like that that kind of comes into that kind of reactionary conservative, like uh, you know, oh, you're you're all just spoiled. You don't really know what it's like, so you shouldn't complain about being exploited right that's definitely not what i'm saying obviously right like it, you should have nice things everybody should have nice things um and so it's interesting how like the very very basic uh mundane luxuries of a 21st century like millennials closet like mine or yours um and probably but also if you if you only want two shirts you should that should be okay. Like, well, exactly. people get ostracized right. for Don't, wearing the same clothes every day here. Pushed into consumption just because of somebody else's stupid opinion, right? Yeah. But this is, but this is exactly, this is relevant exactly to 
kind of glad you put it that way. This is this is relevant to the whole like the fashion cycle and the, a lot of textiles and everything that was happening at that time in the like early 1800s, right? Uh, is that suddenly there was all this stuff that was accessible, and then there was like it was like you had to keep up with your class in a way, or else you would be ostracized and yeah. seen as some kind of weirdo, right? Um, but in order to keep up with your class, you had to obviously participate in a level of consumption that was implicitly unethical uh, because of the level of just God awful exploitation that was going on in, in textile and, and like fabrication and everything like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think like clothing still remains the primary class signifier. Like, Oh yeah. You know, we yeah, make I mean, fun of rich people for like being like yacht owners all the time and stuff like that, or like yeah. having fancy cars. But like, really, the first thing that any rich person would notice is your clothes. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Your your clothing, um, whatever you wear, whatever you append to yourself, is generally going to tell people um, most of the most of the sort of yeah class signifiers that they're looking for. Um, and so that's that's always really interesting. Um, running into that, you know, just in public or at work, because <laughs> you're like, oh, like this person, they're only one, they're only one formal rank above me on this team, but I can tell that they like have a rich daddy because they show up in this kind of clothing and they act like this and blah 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 blah, right? And like uh, they can also tell that I don't have a rich daddy, and so like them being a manager in this nonprofit or something is pretty much just like that's just like a fucking resume filler for them. You know, they're just doing right. it so that they can later take over some company, you know, and not look like a total idiot. Right. And own someone um, online by saying, Oh, I helped the homeless. What did it, what have you done? Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's all just fucking tokens at the, at the carnival for them, you know, um, for us, we're the fucking carnies, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, to wrap up the So Stack article, basically, the Industrial Revolution, evolution, revolution was almost certainly spurred on by an increase in long-distance transportation and the interconnectedness of transportation. Um, the fact that England, which put significant effort in creating and maintaining a rapid and connected transportation network, led the world in industrialization supports this, I think. Um, yeah. I thought that article was very interesting. Uh, I'll definitely link it in the show notes. Uh, you'll have to get it through uh, Sci-Hub because it's behind a paywall. Uh, or pay like $48 to read it. <laughs> uh, easy choice, I think. Yeah. Um, Showstack, I read a few pieces by Showstack in grad school, so I'm glad that oh, you okay. brought uh, him into this. Um, yeah, like definitely a significant name. Um, but uh, if you go to academia.edu and you log in with like, if you have like a Facebook account or a, or a Google account. Oh, is there a preprint? I think there might be, there's at the very least, it looks like there's at the very least like a couple literary reviews that you can kind of read in order to get an idea of what Shustak says about some things. But I'm not sure. So, um, you know, just give it a stab. Is it, is it Shostak? Yeah. I think it's Shostak. That's how I heard it. Shostak. Oh, okay. I thought yeah. I thought the SZ was just pronounced like an S. Shostak. Well, I'm sure that. But I'm very stupid, so I'm probably wrong. Notice. If you yeah. learned it in grad school, you probably heard the correct pronunciation. <laughs> well, 
I mean, probably not. <laughs> there were so many idiots in grad school. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, again, our, our narrative, even on the left, for why factories became prominent, um, and often why factories will definitely exist in the communist utopia, is uh, economies of scale. And so the idea is that large factories are just, they're just simply more efficient at producing goods uh, than smaller scale production. And so we need factories, uh, even in communism, because otherwise we're wasting materials and energy. So I wanted to figure out if material, physical, and energy economies of scale actually exist. Okay. Um, So... I knew right off the bat, uh, heat engines actually do get more efficient the larger they are. So if you uh-huh. have like a, I think it's actually called a Sterner engine. It's like the ideal engine. Uh, the larger it is, the more efficient it is. Okay. And I think I might have talked about this on the show before, but like the Boeing 737 Max thing, uh-huh. uh, the reason they were crashing is because they increase the size of the engines to increase the fuel efficiency of the plane. But Mm -hmm. because the engines were already too close to the ground to increase the size, they like tilted them up or something like that. And so they wrote this software to like compensate for that. And the software Uh failed because it was a piece of shit software. Uh And uh, so the, the planes crashed because the, the pilots didn't realize what was happening. Um, so I know that in terms of like heat engines, economies of scale exist. Now, right, right, whether right. factories are powered by heat engines is a different story. <laughs> whether it applies to the rest of the shit that happens in yeah. there, uh, again, different story. Um, so I, I tried to look for studies that looked for whether or not economies of scale were a real thing. Um, I couldn't really find anything because every search term I could come up with um, was basically like really specialized, like uh, industrial science. Right. Didn't really have anything to do with what I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up asking young neocon if he knew anything about it since he's really oh. well read on ecological economics and stuff like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'm just going to read what he said directly. Um, this was in a DM, which is why it, it's structured this way. Okay, <laughs> so he okay. says, Economies of scale exist both dynamically and static, but there are several kinds. There's internal and external. So an internal one is like, let's say land is a a huge fixed cost, then the larger the enterprise, the less the unit cost. Mm -hmm. External static economy of scale is where multiple producers in an area drive down each other's factor prices, like software networks. Right. An internal dynamic economy of scale is that big corporations have lower internal discount rates and lower costs of financing, so growth is faster via R&D. And external dynamic economy of scale is like the intellectual commons. So they do exist, but they often self-cancel or will be completely wiped away or will be enforced via monopoly or will be enclosed and privatized or will be matched by diseconomies of scale. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, this essentially, 
<laughs> yes, thank you again for explaining something that is bigger than the words we used. Um, somehow, uh, <laughs> that's that's fascinating. Um, yeah, no, that, I, I kind of get that. Like, essentially, that like the effects are canceled somehow by some other. Yeah, like it's very complex. It's not a straightforward right. thing. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Okay, yeah, I'm glad that he also broke down some of these different sort of subtypes. Um, that's that's very like uh, crystallized. Um, yeah, there's a lot to get into there that I I don't even want to start to try to flesh out out loud because <laughs> um, I think I'm actually well behind young neocon in terms of my awareness of like the theories of, of this and that economic model but even two of those though so like mm -hmm. i didn't really say like what i thought about the whole economies of scale thing which is my feeling on it is that most of what we call economies of scale is really just uh the larger a factory is the more likely it is to be owned by a larger business and the larger a business is, the more market power they can command. And so they get better deals on both materials and labor, which drives their costs down. And that's why it seems that as we scale up, the efficiency goes up because we measure efficiency in dollars. Right. Yeah, exactly. And this is, yeah. Yep. I was just thinking about the, um, uh economies of scale and how uh yeah if yes exactly measuring efficiency in dollars because then you're like oh for example uh, a more kind of simple example for for the kind of the the layperson is like oh economies of scale can be something as simple as like um buying in bulk right because that's actually something that kind of like that that concept of buying in bulk drives a lot of what we call economies of scale when really the reason you can buy in bulk is because you have like a centralized um, distributor and or producer um, who has executive power to adjust prices. And so if you buy in bulk, what's what's really going on there when it cheapens is that they're just trying to like shed the inventory for like an optimal co uh, optimal uh, uh, revenue to themselves. Um, yeah, it's le it's a less risky sale than trying to sell exactly at higher prices right. to a bunch of different people. Exactly, and so it's basically it's just you know it's just fucking uh, yeah you know, it's a capitalist logic um, of like oh if I just make a bunch and then I'm selling it yeah it's simpler and less risky to sell a lot at a time for slightly cheaper and get like slightly less per unit right but um, ultimately that's because they have that arbitrary power right so. It seems if we're on the right track here that like an economy of scale has more to do with the um, the um, kind of kind of bargaining and risk management and and flexibility of like a centralized arbitrary power, uh, you know, like the broker of the goods um, or or whatever. Um, so economies of scale. It, 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 like do they re, you know the sterner engine is an example of like heat engine that, that that does that but like beyond financial scale like what oh, how it's sterling not sterner sterling okay okay yeah so yeah so like 
yeah, this, this brings up a really good question, which is, like you said, like, does it really actually function if we're not using like a centralized um, sort of uh, private property power um, or power relation? You know? Yeah, fucked up. It's pretty fucked up. So basically, they're just kind of giving us an excuse for why they should have more power because they're like, oh, well, you know, economies of scale. You're like, yeah, but that's, that only works if you have that much power. So you're saying give us more power, right? So that we can then, you know, be super efficient. But what that really means is just like, give me more power so that I can have more power to arbitrarily do this or that and fuck around. Um, and then of course, if they have monopoly or something like monopoly, then nothing matters anyway. You know, they're just gonna fuck you over regardless. Um, yeah, and I get the feeling that a lot of the people that think this kind of thing would also be the first to like call you privileged for expecting like luxuries in communist society, you know, like, Oh, you want, you, you expect to have like an American style lifestyle. That's so privileged. But like, also we definitely need to construct mega machines of human beings in order to reduce the material cost of production. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I, I think like, even though I couldn't really find any science on it, uh, you know, any scientific analysis is like kind of beside the point because whether or not economies of scale hypothetically, theoretically exist, uh, it clearly does not matter when the end result is the system that we have, which is a very large scale factory system where yep. most of what we produce is shit. Yep, exactly, exactly. Or, um, you know, just incredibly wasteful. I remember reading a passage from a book um, by some like large industrial association mm -hmm. where they were examining the level of waste in the U.S. manufacturing system and they found that 99% uh, of all industrial products became waste within six weeks and 80% of, of goods were made to be used only one time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's it's like you said, I, I like your point about, you know, whether or not economies of scale exist in like a technical sense or, or can be constructed in the way that we think they might exist or could exist, whatever. You know, yeah, if the end result is this, then then fuck this, because um, it's just not worth it. And, and it kind of like it made me think like. Uh, it's it's kind of like that whole you know just because you can doesn't mean you should right like uh let's just use a really outlandish fun sci-fi kind of example uh just to just to kind of color this um in a different way let's just say that these experimental uh um probes that have gone out and landed on comets and asteroids and shit right uh Right. Like, that's really fucking cool. I love that we can do that. That's really fucking awesome. And I, I love like the, the, the footage and all this kind of shit. But then, of course, then you think, oh, well, uh, you know, there's a bunch of uh, tech capitalists out there who are thinking along the lines of like, what if we um, send out uh, little mining drones to collect uh, raw resources um, from these asteroids and stuff? Because a lot of them are like iron, nickel, et cetera. And like, we could fucking use that. And it would be like, uh, you know, costly up front maybe, but then it would also be like just robot labor and that would be super cool and sci-fi and, you know, visionary and futuristic and all this shit. And I'm like, you know, 
uh, tentatively, that would be really cool. But let's just say that we find out that, um, yeah, you could get like a just a fucking shit ton of of super cheap, you know, iron, nickel, copper, whatever in these out of these asteroids and bring it back to Earth and make like fucking incredible, you know, cheap uh, futuristic shit. But then, oh, oh, my God, actually, the scientists are running toward us with a giant thick report. Or actually, they just emailed us a PDF because let's be real. But oh, shit, oh, shit. Everybody's like sweating blood because they figured out that, um, you know, before we even launched the first mining mining drone you know uh mining more than like one percent of the asteroids to uh, you know to the point that they want to um will seriously throw off like the gravitational ecosystem of the solar system and you know what those fucking capitals will do they will not give a fuck right <laughs> they will do it they will still do it and so it's the same kind of thing it's like oh uh it'll ruin gravity and totally destroy all life and probably call destructive solar flares yeah they'll just be like fuck you man i want my 15 years of like obscene wealth you know yeah. or, or like the entire solar system eats itself right i want to eat sushi off some broads tits <laughs> yeah right pretty much it's it's goddamn ridiculous you know we're a toxic species and we shouldn't exist uh, but anyway <laughs> so you have this part about the largest factories in the world yeah, so I was actually, you know, speaking of scale and all this shit, I was like, huh, you know, I wonder which factories, like, where are the biggest factories in the world? So I dug up this, I dug up this link on the extremely cursed URL, visualcapitalist.com. Um, <laughs> but they did have a list of the world's largest factories. And I'm sure, you know, there were like many, uh, you know, uh, many eyes were glistening and, and many dicks were hard as they created this page. Um, but uh, they, they had this infographic on this URL that you may visit if you so choose. And the top of the list, the biggest factory at the time in, I think, 2016, was the Volkswagen Wolfsburg plant, uh, where they... Um, now, that's just a cool town name. Yeah, Wolfsburg, come on. That's, that's fucking badass. The factory is six and a half million square meters. Isn't it like two by three kilometers or something like that? Yeah, that's insanity. That's... um. That's 25 square miles. <laughs> that's insane. Um, that's fucking insane. Uh, uh, like, <laughs> for comparison... So two by two and a half miles. Yeah. Y yeah, that's, that's a hell of a lot of land. Um, I, I, I don't... Yeah, that's insane. I don't even know what to say about that. So, so that's a hell of a lot of land. Um, big fucking factory... Um, it says floor workers use bicycles to make their way around. Jesus. Yeah, of course, of course, it's Germany, so they use bicycles. If it was the States, they'd all have pickups, you know. Yeah, oh, I love these. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I love riding okay. my bike at work. Right, okay. So this, fa okay, so this factory, okay, so this factory is 20, 20, uh, 25.0, no, 25.1 square miles, roughly. Okay. The total land area of Washington, D.C. is 68.3 square miles. That is barely double how much land this factory takes up. Um, <laughs> that, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so Volkswagen Wolfsburg, and that's just one of Volkswagen's plants, right? Just the biggest, biggest in the world, is nearly half the size of the capital of the United States. So that's hilarious. Um, 
And uh, again, yeah, they fucking have to use bikes to get to get around, which is like they must be fit as fuck if it's if it's really that big. Yeah. Um, and then there's the goddamn you know Tesla Gigafactory, which is just I I, I really I hate that they called it this. Yeah, um, the terrible factory one. Like, oh, okay, sure. And uh, how much? How big is this motherfucker? Um, one gigabyte. <laughs> right, right. Oh, oh, that's a that was an area. That's just a. <laughs> um, and they apparently completed it in like 2016, and it's in. Um, it's near Reno, Nevada. And it's a lithium-ion battery and electric vehicle subassembly factory where they make their suicide cars uh, for rich people. Um, so, you know, that's not really praxis, but at least it has some funny side effects. Then they they have two, no, yeah, two other giga factories, I think, under construction. One in Buffalo, New York, and the other in Shanghai. And then something kind of clicked in my head, okay? So I was like, oh, Shanghai. And then I was like, wait, this thing is still under construction. It's like a gigantic fucking manufacturing plant, right? And so I went and I, I, I Googled it and I found this Guardian article that I saw a while back in 2017, uh, which is about like the, the basically just figuring out which cities of the world are going to suffer the most from climate change, which, you know, like, I'm laughing because of the Gigafactory. I'm really, really sad for all the people in these cities, especially because these are big fucking cities. You know, yeah. I mean, this, it, it is a disaster, and it's like, that's not what I'm laughing about. I, I, I feel terrible, and it, you know, keeps me awake at night sometimes. We're not laughing um, at the suffering of poor people. We are right, laughing exactly. at the suffering of I'm laughing at the suffering of fucking Elon Musk. <laughs> so, so you see on this Guardian article, the number one city uh, in the world to be affected by climate change is Shanghai uh, by like a long shot. Yeah, it's like over double the next highest one. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the next one is like, uh, next few down is like Hong Kong. And that's like, yeah. So then then I'm like, okay. So I looked up the map of where the Gigafactory 3 construction site is. And I, put, I posted it in the notes. But it's basically, it's about two miles from Hangzhou Bay. Uh, and it's literally almost at the edge of this sort of semi-peninsula that Shanghai is built on. Uh, and, and I'm like, okay, that's, that's fucked. But maybe, you know, maybe there's an elevation change, but then I went back to the Guardian article. No, they have a like little before and after map and I've posted that as well. And most of Shanghai will be completely underwater, um, including that entire area. Uh, and so this basically further demonstrates that Elon Musk is a greedy, heartless imbecile who doesn't give a fuck. Uh, but at the same time, he will be owned for his foolishness by Mother Earth. So, uh-huh. <laughs> ah, motherfucker. <laughs> and I also just threw in a note about like how it's going to be kind of hilarious when like, you know, they built these they build these fucking gigafactories and shit. And then if they don't become underwater or permanently on fire, like we can just expropriate them and use them as like bunkers or communes or like, you know, our own purposes. We could turn them into fucking greenhouses, I guess. I don't know. Just like do what we can do with them. Um, I think you know. the ones that do end up underwater. I remember reading that if you electrify a structure with a low current underwater, uh, uh, it attracts corals. Oh, fuck. Yes. Into coral reefs. 
Oh yes, I love this idea. I fucking love it. I love this. So we can we can. Uh, but kind of I don't know. I, I, I personally think that um, Elon is actually a super genius. Uh, I, I oh, mean, yeah. it's pretty obvious that he is because right. he built a rocket all by himself. He built all those cars by himself. Yeah, Iron uh, Man. He, yeah. he invented PayPal. Yeah. Uh, he invented Bioshock. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. So he's most likely. Oh, oh yeah, and and he uncovered that uh, the pedophile conspiracy with the diver that rescued the Thai yeah. kids. Yeah. So. Uh, Obviously, genius. So right. I think he built the Gigafactory on pontoons, and it's just going to float up out of the water. It'll be fine. You're probably right. I mean, he couldn't be dumb enough to just leave it on solid ground and, you know, totally immobile. I don't know. Take a profoundly stupid person, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would think you would have to be, like, not just deranged, but but actually, like, severely, like like, fundamentally... Uh, uh, incapable of of higher level thought to 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 actually pour all of your capital into a project like that if it was really doomed to fail. And you know, you just have to have like completely uh, fucked self awareness because you know you're you're going around all the time saying that you're saving the earth by like you know oh climate change is going to happen and right. guess what when it does. Uh, you'll be happy I made those electric cars and found an escape plan to get to Mars. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to be you'd have to be a complete idiot, right? But but he's obviously not. But, you know, I mean, what complete idiot? Unfortunately for our bit here, he's not an idiot. So yeah, yeah. I those mean, factories will be fine. Right. Exactly. You know, he's he's dating a famous manic pixie dream girl, uh, Canadian drug techno girl. Um, so, like, that just proves that he's a genius because he's capable of understanding modern poetry, you know? So, yeah. Um, so, I actually thought of an anime tie-in, which I mentioned at the beginning but didn't connect it to the actual theme of the show. Okay. Um, well, I guess it's not anime, it's manga. There's oh, a, there's an idiot. anime. Oh, there. God. But um, the manga Blom... Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written by Hiroyuki Seshita, um, and it is from, it can't be from 2017. Oh, I guess it is. No. Oh, that's the movie. That's the movie director. Whoops. All right. <laughs> Let me go back a little bit. So, it is by Tsutomu Nihei. <laughs> And it is from 1996 to 2003. And it's basically about a future where uh, humanity built these automated factories and manufacturing robots um, to construct cities. Okay. And they basically got totally out of control and uh, built a structure that's just in the series called The City. In okay. capitals, okay, and it's just so it's just a giant mega city uh, that's like eight astronomical units in radius. Okay, so it like extends wow. out past Jupiter's oh, orbit. Shit. Um, <laughs> and it's just this giant dystopian fucking mass of construction work uh-huh. that's constantly changing. Uh-huh. Uh, humanity is barely hanging on by a thread because. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, everyone got so fractured, I guess, that, like, uh, I haven't read through the whole thing, so I don't know the whole story, uh, but uh, I, I, what I put together is uh, the robots were controlled by something called a net terminal gene, which okay. was basically, like, an interface into the computer network that controls them. Okay. And yeah. that trait evolved out of humans. Um, okay. Okay. So the main character is actually looking for someone with this gene so they can stop the city from being built. And so okay. the robots have just been going crazy. And there's also they also build this army that they call the Safeguard, which is just like a killer robot army that protects the city from intruders who are people, anyone who doesn't have the net terminal gene, which means any human. Um, so it's a really cool manga the only reason i haven't read through the whole thing is just because i'm bad at reading books <laughs> oh right yeah, yeah so i haven't you know been able to focus and read the whole thing through but it's a uh, really cool style um like it's visually really interesting it's very goth i think it's like cyber goth mm. nice. nice um and it's basically just like uh what would happen if gentrification went wild to the to the most extreme degree possible <laughs> yeah i really want to read that i um i actually didn't know that that was the premise like i'd, I'd heard the name of it before uh-huh. i knew that it was like a well-known title you know but i didn't know that that was the premise and it sounds fascinating and i really want to get into that so um yeah could you post thing um, that's really cool about it is there's very little dialogue so it's almost entirely visual oh sweet yeah i yeah. love that i love that um yeah, I, I really had a lot of fun reading animes like or mangas like that before. Um, there was one that was like an indie manga that was really super weird and like sort of um, psychological that I read once. That yeah, it was like almost no dialogue, and so you're just trying to like follow like the person's mental journey. Yeah, um, that sounds cool. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, so, is there like a since we're on the topic, and I actually haven't read this, but I would like to. Is there like a a particular website where you're reading this one? Or are you reading uh, it? Well, I used to read it on Kiss Manga, but that uh, is, like, fucked now. So uh, you might be able to find it on Mangadex. Okay. M-A-N-G-A-D-E-X. I, I'll <laughs> link it in the show description. Um, okay, cool. That's where I'm reading One Piece. Um, and I think I think it has, like, a really good selection. Um, nice. The the physical books are kind of expensive. It's like I think it's like six volumes, and they're like thirty five dollars each. Oof. They're pretty yeah, thick, but still, that's yeah. a lot yeah. for a book. <laughs> yeah, and you need I, six I, of them. So I cannot afford to collect mangas, even the ones I love, like Berserk. Um, yeah, yeah okay, it's so like I keep looking for them in the used bookstore. Uh, yeah, yeah, but people just never get rid of the good ones, you know. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so like, I, oh, yeah, I, there's volume three through 400 of One Piece, which is like the eight-year-old ones or something like that, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so I just looked it up on Magadex, and it looks like it is available there, um, which is awesome. I think um, at the very least worth, worth looking into. Um, and there, so, there's yeah, a awesome. couple anime adaptations. Um, there is a series that I have not seen, uh, which is supposed to be like, meh. And uh, there's a Netflix movie, which I enjoyed because it looked cool and, you know, it's a fun anime movie. It's not, like, anything to write home about or anything like that. And um, 
Last time I tried to watch it, I don't know if it was just like network problems or something, but uh, everything seemed really out of sync or like jittery or something like that. Like, like I was it was dropping frames. So I don't know if that was the style and I just didn't notice before because I was like really stoned or something like that, or if that's what it actually looks like. So just a warning, yeah. I guess. <laughs> You're too stoned for the for the lag. Yeah. <laughs> um. And since I mentioned it, I'll just bring up Dr. Stone. Uh, that's the, the new hot anime that's out now. Uh, it's a really popular manga. And uh, it's very cool so far. Uh, it's basically, the premise is, like, this weird wave of energy, like, petrified all of humanity. Um, and... Basically, the world went on without humans uh, for about 3,500 years until uh, Senku, I think his name is, the main uh, one of the main characters. Um, and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Um, but anyway, like, they, they both break out of their state of petrification. Um, I think they were both in a cave that was dripping... Uh, nitric acid onto them and that's that's what got him out of it uh but oh, okay. i might be remembering that wrong but anyway yeah. um senku is like a genius scientist guy he's like uh rick from rick and morty but like not a dickish alcoholic um, <laughs> right so oh, he starts rebuilding civilization uh -huh. and uh he enlists the other guy's help because the other guy is like just a big meathead so he can do all kinds of manual labor stuff. Um, and so they're trying to rebuild civilization, basically. And uh, it's very cool. It's on episode three or four now. Uh, so check that one out. Very cool. Highly recommend. And it's another... like I feel like lately there have been a lot of series where the villains have had more like understandable motivations because the main villain that emerges early on uh, mm -hmm. is like, hey, uh, civilization was, like, fucked before we all got <laughs> petrified, so right. we shouldn't, like, reproduce that. That would be bad. Yeah. And he, and he like, tells a story of, I, I think it's supposed to be him, but just 